You're listening to The Outfield with Eddie Robinson on Sirius XM OutCue. Now, David, before we get into the awesome work that you've done with Real Sports, did, did you always have an interest, a fascination with journalism? I mean, what was it that pulls you in, that draws you in the most about what you do for a living? Well, you know, it's, um, it's, the, uh, it's the, the combination of storytelling and reporting that, that I find fascinating, um, often more interesting than fiction, often stranger than fiction. Um, but the, uh, the nexus between uh, reporting and storytelling is, uh, is my life's passion. Yeah. And did you ever play any sports? Is there a particular sport that you have a passion for as it relates to um, sports in general? I, I, I love sports. I played, you know, I played at a very low level uh, various sports growing up. Um, I, I can't claim much, uh, much talent in, in <laughs> athletics. Um, but um, but in, uh, in our program, you know, it's, um, it's as much about the story as, uh, as about the sport. It's really life through the lens of sports. And, um, you know, over 20 years, real sports um, has proven that you can tell a lot about life through that lens. And, you know, that's what I love about real sports. There are a ton of sports outlets that give you the X's and the O's and the predictions, you know, many of which from sports pundits fall short. But whenever someone asks me, you know, what this radio show is about, I say that the outfield um, is a radio cross between fresh air, but in the locker room with Terry Gross, mm-hmm. and the radio version of real sports. So for you as a producer, as, as, a, as a correspondent thus far, what's been the most compelling assignment that you've ever worked on, and it still resonates with you to this day? Well, you know, it, that, that is, um, it's, it's almost like asking me to choose between my children. Um, each one of these projects, and especially on a show like Real Sports, where, where you get to go deep, each one of these projects is, uh, is its own fascination. You know, we, we like to say it's like a Rubik's Cube, um, whether it's the story we did in, uh, in May about uh, blind kayakers solo kayaking the Grand Canyon, um, or one of these heady investigations of, of, of FIFA and the international you know, sports governors, um, or a story like the, uh, the one we just did that's airing now on uh, mixed martial arts and domestic violence. Um, you know, they each uh, pose their own challenges, their own unique sort of storytelling and narrative challenges, uh, definitely their own reporting challenges when you're up against um, formidable adversaries, you know, like, uh, like international football. Um, and um, and it is just a uh, a rare and, uh, and 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 great privilege to to be able to to um, you know own some of these stories on uh, on a show like uh, like Real Sports. We only do 33 original stories a year. Um, we are unlike really any other sports news or news magazine um, in the media landscape in that regard. Um, we have precious few stories and and. Um, and so we get to go really deep on all of them, and um, and uh, and everyone is uh, is meant to be an extremely memorable and and an important experience for the viewer. So that that's what um, that's what um, you know really makes it uh, great to work on real sports. Yeah, and and it seems like how, how does the team actually choose or select the stories? I mean, are they sent in from viewers? I mean, when you look at some of these you know, heart wrenching stories and segments within the sport um, of real sport, I mean, it is just so remarkable. Where do these stories come from? I mean, how are they selected? Yeah, it's a good, it's a great question. Um, uh, and there is, uh, you can imagine, with so few stories, uh, 
competition to get a slot is uh, is yeah. bad, and the bar is really high. And uh, and so you know everybody on the staff pitches stories. Occasionally, somebody will write in with something that uh, that, that takes shape, and um, uh, and that we uh, that, that will end up on air. But but in the main, uh, the producers, the associate producers. Um, the uh, the production associates, um, our bosses, everybody pitches stories. They go through a kind of intense filtering system to to, to make sure they have the potential to, to meet the bar, um, that they're going to be important, that they're going to be memorable, that they are narratively rich, not just um, not just interesting issues, um, uh, but actual stories that open on uh, open a window onto a a bigger, uh, deeper problem, and um, uh, and so so there's this intense screening process and um, and, uh, and 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 intellectual life around the show that um, that winds up producing, you know, very often, immodestly say, uh, really memorable work. And is it that intense um, assessment um, that is the to the success of real sports and its investigative journalism. You know, I remember here on the outfield, you know, we had legendary Drew Bledsoe on the show. Not that we were talking about cats or anything like that, but we were talking about his winery business. Mm-hmm. So with HBO's Real Sports, you know, what do you think is the formula for it being so successful? Why do so many people feel that this show really is pretty impactful and reveals quite a bit behind the curtain as it relates to sports and athleticism and perhaps even um action in terms of things moving forward within the national news uh realm because in some instances these segments are very powerful powerful enough to make things happen in the world of news and reporting it, it um it, it has it has happened that that we've uh, that we've had an impact in particular cases and and I think more generally in the in the nature of uh, of the debate on many many issues um but you know, when you think about it, um, think about how how few programs um, in the media landscape um, will take an yeah. issue and uh, and give it 25 minutes of television, um, or or even 15. Long form television journalism is um, is uh, is a very rare space in the media landscape. You know, the internet is um, is lousy with, uh, with with blogs. Um, uh, it's eaten up most of print and television journalism um, in some ways. Um, but when you look at what you can actually watch on television, there is uh, precious little long-form journalism. So that's what makes us, you know, unique almost by just you know our existence is uh, is that uh, that we uh, we have the ability to to go so deep on uh, on issues on television. Um, you know, some of them play like mini documentaries. Um, you know, some of them play like long news magazine stories. Some of them um, sort of uh, trying to find uh, an issue and, and place us in the in the center of debate. Um, and and those are all things that uh, that frankly the viewer you know doesn't get enough of. Um, and, uh, and 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 what makes uh, you know, real sports kind of a, a special experience for viewers. We're talking with correspondent David Scott with HBO's award-winning Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, 866-305-6887, if you have a question or comment that you'd like to make with David. And I look, this is a tremendous um, task that it has with regards to all these correspondents and the people that 
he has put together this amazing show. Um, your report on Qatar's pursuit of sports glory at any cost was just really quite fascinating. And it reminded me of actually a Vice episode on HBO as well, that which highlighted sort of like the same modern slavery of abuse and, and, and exploitation of migrant workers preparing for the World Cup of 2022. Um, before you kind of m- perhaps give us a nugget or two of, of anything that you'd like to share from a production standpoint of what went on that we're able to see looking at that episode, before I ask that question, there was a white suit, Dave, you were wearing that was just tremendous i mean i'm like where is this brother getting this fashion i mean your suits are remarkable and there was a white suit there was a white suit that you wore it was where did he get this suit right it's amazing where are you getting your wardrobe um oh i appreciate that um that that particular suit is um is the tom brown creation for brooks uh in 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 a line that uh that that he designed for for them and i uh, somehow it um, the cut of it fits me well, so I've uh, I've mm-hmm. tried to I've tried to stick to um, to 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 those um, to those cuts yeah. and, uh, and that look. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the fashion is definitely speaking volumes as well. Yeah. You know, outside of the fact that it's such a great show, but well, in particular with this uh, Qatar episode, I mean, was, were any nuggets or anything that you can share from from a production or any kind of challenges or issues? Yeah. That yeah. you ran into as a result of putting this segment right. together because it was right. so interesting. Well, you know, think about it. Um, Qatar is a um, is an absolute monarch, right? There is um, there is uh, a, a rule of law only to the extent that the emir and his um, and his deputies um, yep. decide there should be. Um, and so there's no protection for for the press. There's no press freedom. There's certainly no no entitlement for for you know, a group of American reporters to, to come and, and, and poke around in, uh, in, in the labor camps. And, and so what you don't see in the piece, um, you know, is, uh, is a sort of game of, of, of cat and mouse that, uh, that investigative journalism in that context often requires, um, operating under the radar, you know, um, threading the line between public permissions and, uh, and, uh, and, getting, the, and getting the story. Um, and uh, and so that process was unfolding behind the scenes uh, the entire you know through the entire uh, trip and um, and culminated in a uh, in a very confrontational interview with um, the uh, the head of the Aspire Sports Academy, which is Qatar's sort of national sports research and development um, foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and, and so you know we did some things that um, that. Uh, you know, I think really um, would have upset the authorities. Uh, other journalists have uh, been detained uh, and had their materials confiscated for yeah. doing serious, you know, similar things. And you know, like visiting the labor camps, which um, which is an incredible uh, scandal, really. You know, you know, they've got hundreds of thousands of the poorest men from Asia living in two-story cinder block uh, uh, dormitories. Eight men to a room, ten men sharing a toilet. Um, uh, there is a, a zone outside of the city of Doha called the industrial zone, which is like something out of a, a dystopian novel or movie, where where literally hundreds of thousands of migrant workers are are housed in squalid conditions, and um, and and seeing that really put a uh, a whole new filter 
on the uh, the FIFA decision to award the World Cup to uh, to Qatar in 2022. Um, uh, it is a it is a country with vast wealth and a very shrewd national sports development program, which is all about um, establishing itself as a cultural power in the region, as a political power in the region, in some ways of the world. And yeah. um, and what you find is that um, uh, everyone seems to have trouble saying no to their money, whether that's FIFA or the sponsors of the World Cup, you know, or frankly a number of Western universities that have established campuses uh, in Doha, Western hospitals that have established uh, branches in uh, in Doha. Um, there is a uh, there is a, uh, a problem in that. Qatar is able to use its vast wealth to uh, buy credibility by association, and that's part of what they're trying to do with the World Cup. Um, and uh, and there are many many complicit parties among you know Western actors in that process. And do you see Qatar seeing the light of day with 2022? I know I know Brian uh, Gumbel asked you that at the end of your segment, but in your heart of hearts, do you still believe that they could? St- they, they could have the World Cup in 2022. Well, it is, in fact, the logical outcome of everything that's happened so far. There's, there's nothing nothing afoot that we know about mm-hmm. uh, in the public domain um, that could lead to a reversal of, uh, of that outcome. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the American investigation has no sway over, the, over the, uh, the, those, those uh, six already successful bids. The Swiss um, government is investigating. They have no influence over that outcome. Even if everybody who's been indicted goes to jail, which is almost impossible, uh, that won't happen. Um, the, uh, the, the 2018 and 2022 bid outcomes for Russia and Qatar uh, will remain. And, um, and, and so think about who is going to be voting to replace Seth Blatter, the outgoing president of FIFA. Uh, well, it's the people on the on the executive committee, the people who have benefited allegedly in terms of the ongoing investigations. And anecdotally, there's tremendous evidence that um, that that committee created a culture of influence peddling and buying. Um, they're the ones that are going to be selecting his successor. So are they going to all of a sudden decide to reform the institution? It seems unlikely. Um, I, I think, you know, unless something totally unexpected happens, and look, we didn't see this investigation by Loretta Lynch coming, so maybe that's possible. Um, unless something totally unexpected happens, um, uh, we will see those games play in Qatar. Correspondent David Scott is with us from HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. The recent MMA story and domestic uh, segment that you did with Real Sports received quite a bit of clash and understandably so within the world of MMA but at the same time you know folks like uh, 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 Dana White and you know the athletes are you know focusing and spotlighting on declined to comment but critics saying despite covering a very important topic of domestic violence in sports and in the wake of the disturbance of Ray Rice's elevator video critics say you know that you ramped up the violent nature of MMA showing the bloody fights from the from a promotion you when you spoke to Maya Miller I even started cringing before the interview began because this guy is completely nuts. Um, and, and critics have said that, you know, you, that they, they question the data on the MMA domestic abuse rates exceeding the NFL player rates. 
your reaction to those who say that the piece in and of itself, that segment, may have created somewhat of a false narrative to the current state of MMA? Well, I, we should take those one at a time. That was a lot. Uh, was a lot of issues in that uh, in that sort of summary. Um, but um, but in general, I mean, you know, we stand by the report. Everything was thoroughly reported and vetted. Um, there's nothing in that report that uh, that we can't uh, stand up. Um, well, it doesn't stand up to uh, to scrutiny. Um, uh, I would say that um, that people are either you know slightly over overly defensive of the sport that they love, and we understand how, you know, fans operate, um, or they're unfamiliar with the modern history of MMA. And that's a great point, because um, at the end of the day, it's happening, and you had Henner Gracie on and put you out. You know, he put you on a massive chokehold, which was very intense. And again, folks, if you haven't seen this episode of Real Sports with Brian Couple, by all means, uh, check your local listings. Go to HBO, HBO On Demand and check that out. Correspondent David Scott with HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. I'm going to play something really quick. Uh, Donnie, if you've got that audio piece, this was something that was discussed on the show back in 2010 with uh, a panel of correspondents on Real Sports. And we're going to play this audio. I want, I want you to listen to the audio, and then I want to get your thoughts. It's to 2015 right now here. Fast forward five years now and the current state, and I want to get your thoughts on it. And they're basically referring to um, gay sports and gay athleticism, and they had just had um, um, a uh, segment on Gareth Thomas. Gareth Thomas was part of the episode, the rugby, Welsh rugby player who's now openly gay. Um, they were just, ref they may be referring to that particular player, but Donnie, go ahead and play that audio for us. What do we really think would happen in this country today, today, if a guy, a star, in the NFL or the major leagues or the NBA came out and said, you know what, I'm gay? What do we think would happen? I think he'd take a real beating from the fans. Do you really? I think. Do you really think you? there are Neanderthals now who would stand up at, at a yes. ballpark oh, and start screaming? Oh, 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 you're not that naive. Come on. You really do. I'm sorry. Do you remember what happened to Steve Kerr? Call me naive. I'm sorry. I don't think. With his dad. Yeah. And 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 the and when his Look, dad. Look, people people are are jerks at games. I get it. Right. But I do think the sensitivity levels are higher now. I don't think the people sitting right. around somebody would allow someone to stand up and start saying those things. I don't think they would anymore. Let me make clear that his teammate embraced him right but the fans initially at an away game didn't now if they're gonna boo some guy who fumbles on the three-yard right. line what do you think they're We're gonna talk about away what games, do you think obviously I get it when you go on the road everything is fair game but what do you really think would happen in locker rooms if somebody right, and I don't think, I don't think he even gets rooms. into the stadium I don't think he even gets into game day because I don't think that the teams today are enlightened enough yet. I think that there Why? is a, because I think people, their, their own masculinity is caught up in it. There's tolerance for, that is still the culture of the NFL and professional sports today in, in a, to a large degree. And I don't think they're enlightened enough and would, would feel threatened on their own turf that somehow they are being tolerant of somebody who's openly gay. I think that there is certainly a homophobic element in the locker room and yet there's also going to be a strong segment that's going to say if you perform then we accept you. You're absolutely that's exactly right. right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. right. That last comment from Andrea Kremer there um, 
what are your thoughts, David? If you were on that panel 2015 and Brian asked that same question, how would you react? How would you respond? Um, I think it's interesting. It's, 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 uh, it's an interesting debate. Um, that was five years ago. We're, we're really yeah. still, uh, we're sort of still in the same discussion, pretty much yeah. at the same point. We've had Michael Sam, um, um, but, um, but, you know, look at the, look at the established uh, landscape of, uh, of modern sports where we're sort of, um, you could, you could pick up that conversation today without missing, uh, missing much of a beat. Don't, don't miss the outfield. Sundays, 11 a.m. East, 8 West on Sirius XM LQ.